we did this trip to Disney World and we're three or four days into this trip and I'm like, here I am in the supposedly happiest place on earth. And honestly, I'm not very happy. I'm not feeling very good. And so that kind of opened the door for me to start thinking about some of this internal world kind of stuff. And around that time, experienced my first diagnosis with depression. Started seeing a counselor through that. Just speaking of adult children of alcoholics, research is showing that of the current adults in our country, one in five grew up in a home with an alcoholic. You're talking about a high number of people who have experienced this kind of dysfunction. Not to mention- That's in America? That's in America. Was that an American Mm stuff? We can be taught this notion of sin as the things that we do out of our desire to rebel against God's desires for us. Yes, there are sins that we commit out of rebellion against God, just a desire to disobey and go against His leading. But there's also things that we do and sins that we commit out of the pain that others have inflicted on us. And then it's not so much about our disobedience against God, but we are reacting from a place of our own pain. Just because I don't believe or agree doesn't mean I can't learn from you. Why did you have to bring that up? Okay, that one I'm super embarrassed about. (laughs) Do you like me? Do I like you? Yeah. As, a, as an individual or as, yeah, a, as, as a person? Well, I like you. Okay, cool. Yeah. cool. And I don't have any interest in appearing to be stronger than I am. I ain't bowed a Nebuchadnezzar statue. He gonna leave. You feel me? How do we love people who see the world differently than we do? What would it look like if we truly loved all of our neighbors? Could listening to their stories be the first step? This is Seacoast Church, and there's way more to talk about. All right, well, welcome to the Seacoast Podcast. <laughs> what are y'all laughing at? The All right, now, just kind of now our listeners have that. no idea what y'all are laughing at. <laughs> explain know. yourself. And they never no, will. we yeah. can't explain ourselves. <laughs> Do you want me to? <laughs> <laughs> we just had a conversation that cannot be aired, and I think that's, that's right. what because we just yeah. made that quick transition. Mm-hmm. We, we were just sharing some stories that, you know, Deep would get us off to stay well, here not, at the table. Not we. <laughs> yeah, not we. Joey would get fired. I would just have a talk with HR. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got, we've got Pastor Ike Miller coming on here in a second, talking about his newly released book. The people are in for a treat, but I wanted to tell Jack, every time I sit down and put some notes together and I know that you're coming in, one of my first thoughts is, how can I mess with Jack? Ooh. Okay. Let's Amy, do, do you like that question yes, too? Yes, let's see. Let's right. go. So I've got, <laughs> I've got three questions that I picked purposely because I think you'll hate. Okay. All right. First question, what gives you a warm fuzzy? Oh. <laughs> like your kids hugging your neck and saying, I love you, dad. Does yeah. that give you a warm fuzzy? Yeah. Okay. Why don't you ever <laughs> nice. wear... That's nice. Why it's don't appropriate. You, why don't you ever wear shorts? Ooh. Oh, well, okay. So first of all, I, like, I wear shorts to work out. I don't like work out in like business wear okay you know okay, that's good. um but no i but you don't wear it leisurely or recreationally well i guess recreationally yeah, like, around the house. like if it's summer around the house yeah like i wear shorts but okay. no and I, I don't wear shorts out just geeky like it, no because i'm i'm not a child and i just think that <laughs> like okay i just think that Shorts are for children. <laughs> yes, forever. For men, I'm not yes. a child. I, I did not, so for men, I might just like shorts in public are for children. <laughs> That's how I feel. 
I see, now, like, I see now, like, I can never wear shorts anywhere ever oh. again. Because we're like, hey, man, what about <laughs> your child? What's your kid? Hey, I, I love this. I, I need to. I love mm-hmm. the fact that his dad has actually said this statement before. He said, I just don't understand the whole hat thing at work. <laughs> I was like, yeah. wow, this has got to be kind of a tricky place for you to work at yeah. Seacoast because yeah. it ain't just hats. You right. Know? And but, not yeah. even at work, like in worship, like he, yeah. On stage. Yeah. And, all right. Mm-hmm. So I, I lied. This one's a serious one. Will not you explain great. the most significant advancements in the church from 500 to 1000 AD and compare it to <laughs> 1000 to 1500 AD? But we need to move on. So make it quick. No. Amy's already checked out. <laughs> I'm already here. I'm Christmas carols over here. <laughs> See, if J- Jack was new to the podcast, he would have gotten excited just now, but he knows we just wanted to make fun of him. Yeah. 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 So you <laughs> opting out? <laughs> not even you just, use this we word a lot. Not even just not new to the podcast, not new to you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I am very much so looking forward to a follow-up conversation that we had on Halloween about horror movies because Lynn, Ooh. I'm even wondering if Lynn's going to be able to keep her composure. Yeah. So re- reminders for people, maybe this is the first episode they're listening to. You're the number one fan. You're part of the podcast, but you're also like I the biggest the fan. You love fan. it. All right. So did you say this was the first time that what people were saying was offensive? Like, was it a, was it offensive to you? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, children. And, and would you break this down <clears throat> as a matter of morals? Like we're talking right and wrong right now. Some of it was, but there was one part of the conversation that I felt like did not line up with the word of God. Oh. And so um, a conversation about like, can watching horror movies be beneficial? And there was a conversation around how seeing horror movies gives you knowledge about the spiritual realm and that could be helpful for you. And I'm like, that's just not good theology. That is the very definition of using weapons of this world and our weapons are not of this world. And so even the idea that watching horror would help you deal with the spiritual realm is an idea that sets itself up against the knowledge of Christ. So that was one thing that I was like, I was driving in my car and I was, no. like, was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and that, like, so yeah. And I was like, Joey. That was me, right? Didn't I say something? Along I those don't lines? know if it was you or not. We don't but need to name names. kind of discussing it and no one refuted it. And I felt very strong. And you know me, there are not a lot of hills I'll die on, but this is one of them. Mm-hmm. I was like, that is not like, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. no. No, ma'am. So I, I agreed with that statement. And what I linked it to, I want to say I used the example of the conversation you and I had about movies that portrayed early America, slavery, and all of that, and how those flicks, not only do I enjoy history, but they, they have been helpful for me to actually see the horror of slavery because you can hear about it and then you can actually see, oh my gosh, this was insanely awful. And I think that's where we kind of link that to same concept in the spiritual realm. And I would say I, I did hear one person say something that was different than that. And so on that point, I just disagree with you on that. Like, I feel like we don't have to see horror to have empathy and understand it. And I think you guys talked about the passion of the Christ. I had never seen that. But when I came to the Lord and I read scripture, like the weight of what Jesus did, like I can feel that Mm -hmm. and like feel the pain of it and the horror of it. 
without having a visual image for it, which the church has been doing for thousands of years before we ever had television. And the same with documentaries, like the spirit of the living God is in us. And so I think compassion and empathy and like understanding for something that happened that we didn't see, we can have that without beholding it. Mm -hmm. Does it give you a different angle given that the writers for The Conjuring are actually Christians. No. No. (laughs) Nope. Does it does it give it a different angle that good when good conquers evil in horror movies? No. No. All right. What do y'all think? Did y'all listen? Y'all don't have to. It's okay. I I actually listened to it twice. Twice. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I forgot when when you reset it, I was like, oh let me refresh. Oh, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. What are your thoughts on all this? Oh, so you told them that we were having this conversation today. Yeah, I did. Did you tell me? Um no, because I knew you already listened. Should I have told you? You no. don't like to know. No. No, you don't yeah, like to I'm know. Good. Yeah. I want to know y'all's thoughts. The uh, Thoughts just, just on Just in general, movies. horror movies, what Lynn's saying. I used to watch all that stuff growing up, and it's like I think I didn't think it affected me. I just thought it, like, washed over me. Like, a lot of the movies y'all were talking about I watch, you know, with Pennywise the Clown. I used to, like, terrorize my younger sister. I thought it was funny, and it didn't really affect me. And then when Lee and I got married, we would watch it. We had friends that watched it. There was like one I still remember from H-E-L-L. Have you ever seen that one? From Hell? Yeah. It was terrible. It was like— It's it, a terrible movie or terribly disturbing? Disturbing. Okay. Like I had terrible nightmares. And there was another one after that. And I remember it was like we just started realizing that we were dealing with fear and we didn't know what it was from. And we just realized we were like by watching those because we would do it with like friends and often and we we're like— it's stemming from that. Like, we're kind of letting that in, and we just stop. So horror movies, no. So we can do thrillers or do thriller, thrillers. Thrillers like, is like the, the bad guy is around killing people, yeah. and they got to be stopped sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, something kinda. like that. But, like, we don't do any type of demonic or anything like that presence. But I would imagine out. that the thrillers could exceed what you guys would be comfortable with when it comes to violence. Yeah, yeah, so sometimes and where we, we will fast forward or right. we'll have to be like, oh, I didn't need to see that. But, yeah, we kind of had to be, like, just on our— We're not going to let that in. We just chose because it affected us. And I didn't realize that it did. You mentioned Passion of Christ. I don't think we brought that up. And I was going to ask you when it comes to the terminology. And I would highly encourage you to listen to that episode if, if, if this is striking a chord with anybody. We'll have it in the show notes. But we use the terminology and we explained it clearly that this had nothing to do with the stereotypical sexual pornography. But we use the terminology torture porn. I don't like it. I don't yeah. like the term. I don't like the term Can we just either. say something else? Sure. Uh, Jack? Um, <laughs> pull out one of your words. Well, no. I actually don't mind the term because, oh. like, it's actually, to my mind, says exactly what it is. Mm. It's not for any other deeper meaning than you enjoy watching people suffer. And the reason I think it's a helpful term is because that's that's not a great thing to simply enjoy watching other people suffer. So I I do not watch horror movies, will not. And it's not a principled thing. I really don't like seeing normal people get killed. Yeah. It's not violence itself. Like, there are plenty of movies I— you know, like, look, I really enjoy the John Wick movies. Like, they're mm-hmm. just mindless and, you know, stupid and yeah. Yeah, really no, fun to watch. Yeah, yeah, I would argue, if you were arguing on principle, that's where I'd push back. No, like, John be, Wick. Oh, no, it's purely there's yeah. something in my brain that, like, I really can't deal with watching just, like, normal people get hurt. It just bothers me a, a lot. You know, with the whole, like, spiritual component of it, I just, like, the, oh, they're they're useful. It's like, of what? It's kind of like when, when people think that um, screw tape letters are actually, like, oh, like, 
we can learn about what the enemy does. It's like, no, not really. It's a novel that a guy wrote. Entertainment. It's good. If you if you read Screwtiblers and you think you're actually getting like an inside look at how hell works, it's like that's it's not. That's a weird that's a weird perspective to have. It's helpful, but you don't need to make it more than it is. I don't know. I, I think the the you know there there's a benefit to watching horror movies. It's like no, there's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, and, and it's movies don't all have to be helpful in some way to be right. enjoyed. So you don't need to find some kind of principle to justify your hobby. So but, so you yeah. you would be okay with someone saying I watch horror movies as a hobby because I enjoy them. You'd be like okay to each his own. Yeah, in a sense, because it's like there are certainly movies that I like that ha- are violent or, um, you know, have things that would bother other people. Mm-hmm. I think you said, like, there are people who watch horror movies and think they're funny. Like, there's like, yes. they think it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. And my thing is, like, I get that in the way of, like, you're, there are some people who's like, it's not real. And I totally understand that it's not real. And so it's just ridiculous to me. I'm not really interested in policing entertainment to, like, to that degree. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there are lines. Passion of the Christ, I think, is an interesting example. So, obviously, we have a written account of, you know, Jesus's torture and death. And there have been, you know, like, there are, you know, crucifixes that, and actually, that's interesting, for a long time, you know, the the crucifixes that showed the suffering Christ were not, a like, they weren't acceptable. They didn't show up for several hundred years. For the first several hundred years of the church, the only images of Christ were, like, Christ victorious. And you didn't see the suffering Christ until later. And that was, like, really controversial at first, and people didn't like it. But, you know, we, we, we are okay with depictions of Christ's suffering. And the passion, okay, now, like the, the, the movie, okay, is that too explicit? Is that too much? And some people would say, yes, that's too much. I don't want to see all that. I don't need to see all that. And some people would say, no, that's fine. Um, it's, it's still okay. But at some point, there is a line, right? Like, and this is ridiculous, but obviously, it's like, it's, that's kind of my point is, you wouldn't actually torture and crucify a real person and say, now we can understand what Jesus went through because we've actually tortured and killed a real person. So there's a line somewhere in terms of a, in accessing and, you know, understanding what Jesus went through. There's a line somewhere. Mm -hmm. I think the thing is that that line is going to be different for different people. And I think that's fine. I think that's fine in entertainment to acknowledge that we aren't all bothered by the same things in the same way as, you know, like there, there are people who cannot ever touch a drop of alcohol just because of what they know about right. themselves. And I think that there are people who can, Yeah. right? So I think entertainment, like with everything, everyone is different and everyone needs to be very aware of who they are and what those lines are for them. They also need to be aware of like, you know, we like to cross our own lines. Right. And, you know, uh, there are probably movies that I enjoy that probably shouldn't have watched. Yeah. So, and and yeah. Lynn, when you mm. brought up Passion of the Christ, <clears throat> you would say that was excessive, no need to show all that? Again, my point is that for me, I felt like I understood that without having to see it. Yeah. And so even in that whole conversation of like, what are we beholding? Mm -hmm. And I think even because the episode was, should Christians watch horror movies? The question was never posed because like a lot of the discussion was around, does this affect me? Does it not? Do I think it's funny? Does it create fear? But there was never a question of like, is this pleasing to the Lord? It, so the answers were all based on personal preference mm-hmm. or experience mm-hmm. and not is Lynn sitting down and in whatever entertainment she's consuming, is she saying, is this horror movie pleasing to the Lord? Right. Is this romantic comedy pleasing to the Lord? Because that's the answer of yeah. whether you should do it. It's not whether it affects you or whether you're entertained by it. That's because true. we are entertained by a lot of things yeah. that don't yeah. please the Lord. 
it wasn't just a conversation about horror movies and whether you like them. It was a conversation about whether Christians should watch horror movies and like what Christ thinks about it was not address which yeah. doesn't answer the question yeah yeah so yeah hey i, I I'll, I'll close with this story the number one thing that's ever freaked me out that i saw on tv so and i remember we had just gone to watch so basically a singing christian band called the imperials have y'all heard of them old school man yeah. old school sandy patty and oh yeah i know sandy uh, patty yeah twyla paris margaret becker mm-hmm. matthew ward should i keep going no Oh, Ray. Ray, Ray Bolts. shaking her head the whole Ray time. Ray Bolts. Go ahead. You remember Ray Bolts? Listen, <laughs> Let's I'll, keep I'll, moving. I'll, <laughs> so we get home from watching the Imperials, there and we then go. we watch one of those 2020 shows, and it, it's real exorcisms. Ooh. And so possibly a mishap on my parents' part for allowing me to see it. I was in the yeah. seventh grade, and it's real. You know, I, I mean, you could question whether or not it was real, but it very much so seemed to be legit footage of a priest you know trying to exercise demons and that thing scared me for so long and here's what's crazy there's a lot of things as an adult i can reflect back on my childhood and give a pretty definitive guess whether or not something happened and i perceived it correctly like as an adult i'm like there's no way i really saw that or whatever to this day i am so not sure but that night i slept in my parents room on the floor Mm -hmm. and it was like the temperature outside was perfect for the windows to be up. And I swear, as a kid, I thought for sure there were demons messing with me from outside of the oh, window. Lord. <laughs> yes, that crazy? Yes. And to this wow. day, I don't know. You're sm- wow. You're- wow. Jack went to laughter. He's laughing at I just, Joey okay, Spencer. Okay, so, so, okay, so, hold on. so you're, there's another problem. A group of demons clocking in for work. And you're like, all right, what do we have today? It's all right. There's a six-year-old. And we just need seventh you to graders. give it. Oh, okay, seven. Uh, seven it's worse. Twelve. Twelve years. Huh. <laughs> six-year-old? Huh. There's this 12-year-old. Tw- we, we need you to go give him a bad night's sleep. Uh, let's go like, mess with them, guys. This is what we rebelled against the creator of all things for. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's what we do now. Bad That's what we do. We, we mess with 12 year olds as demons. Like, that was their job that night. We're That's why I'm laughing. It's like, the, we're how mad would they to get that team. job? Yeah. Like, how mad would they have been to get that job? We're going to go bother a 12 year old. What if there was so much Holy Spirit in our house? Mm, their efforts were thwarted and they wanted action. They yeah, wanted me to, to do be, something yeah, bad. To be fair, they weren't thwarted because you were in your 40s and you remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah. Which, like, we're laughing about it, but like, that's fear. Yeah. And it may not have been mm-hmm. a demon, but it was a thought in your head that yep. was not taken in. captive. Mm-hmm. And you had fear. And you remember it to yep. this day. And so that's why, like, whether it's a real, uh, beholding a real exorcism on TV or, like, a horror movie, it's like you have to ask, is this profitable? Like, what is yep. the benefit of me watching this? Because what effect did it have it? You slept on your parents' mm-hmm. floor that night because you were scared and you had more fear because you yeah. thought you saw something outside. Right. Mm-hmm. And so fear was in a stronghold in your mind that night. Yeah. So to end Jack's laughter. <laughs> well, so yeah. It's usually the best way to end my laughter. Just feel like, actually, Jack, you're an idiot. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, it's, it's Ike Miller. And I'm telling you, this is uh, this is a good one, especially for people who have had tumultuous childhoods to grow out of and to learn from and to grow from. And so it's, it's a doozy. Good. Awesome. Excited.
Also, when Christine Kane backs your book, that's a good thing. It's a big deal. That's a good thing. It's it's really, really (laughs) kind of her, really generous. Um, We um, have gotten to know her a little bit through different kind of run-ins at different places. And, uh, you know, I know that Christine had a difficult childhood. She shares about that in some of her books and some of her speaking. And so I just felt like, you know, this was somebody who understood the message of the book, who understood the importance of finding redemption from that. And so it meant the world that she would, you know, take the time to read it and that's cool. give an endorsement. That's yeah. cool. So how much, how much do you go into your actual family background and the dysfunctions and all of that? And, and however sort of snapshot you want to give yeah. us just for context in this conversation, like what kind of family did you grow up? Yeah. In? So in the book I share, I don't go into a ton of depth in terms of like sharing a ton of stories. I mean, it's a fair amount. It's funny. I think when people read it, it probably feels more exposing than I feel like it is just because I've kind of been sharing this for a long time. But I share that I grew up in a context where my father had uh, an alcohol use disorder or alcoholism. And that was from really as early as I can remember. And that led to all kinds of chaos in our home. My parents uh, ultimately divorced. Uh, There was verbal abuse, um, some physical abuse. And so I share about those things in the book. Uh, Not so much from the standpoint of like, here's what I went through, but more, let me tell you kind of the environment so that I can help you understand why I'm saying what I'm saying about its impact on us as adults. My parents were, you know, had a, a chaotic relationship. They separated when I was in middle school. Uh, my father developed prostate cancer around that time. And so oh, they kind of got back together. My mom saw this as a second chance. Uh, he had treatment and then seemed to be heading in the right direction and then went back to uh, drinking and ultimately was driving with us in the vehicle. And my mom just felt like, I can't do this anymore. This is it. At this point, it's putting my kids in, in danger. And so they separated and then ultimately divorced when I was a senior in high school. And so I share gotcha. you know, that kind of stuff in the book. Yeah. Is your dad still alive? No. So my father actually passed away no. in 2007. So, um, okay. yeah. How much of your, your relationship with your dad was maintained, mm-hmm. you know, through uh, him passing up until that point? Yeah. Did you guys manage to have salvage a relationship? Right. So, you know, my parents separated and then divorced at the end of high school. I still wanted to preserve some kind of relationship between me and him. I wrote him a letter in college, just kind of laying out how I felt about what I had experienced growing up and my understanding of their relationship. We had a conversation about that. You know, it was, it was certainly one of those things where I think he felt like there's two sides to the story, which is valid and understandable. And I think after that, we really worked to develop more of a relationship. You know, he would come and visit me in college and we would get meals together and that kind of thing. And so I think that that there was a desire there and we were working in that direction, um, but it was never uh, a super in-depth you know, kind of relationship. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things I, I want to try to dive into. Yeah. And, and I mean, what, what are some of the 
habits and mindsets and that that you needed to let go of and I'm and I'm curious was there ever an aha moment in your life where you're like oh my gosh <laughs> this is impacting me as an adult and I didn't even realize it yeah. maybe to where even Sharon could see stuff Absolutely. before long before you the funny story is I I joke that when I was in my early 20s I was really passionate about relationships I was somebody that people would go to for advice on relationships and so I kind of took from that well I don't have any baggage. I've worked through all my stuff. Like I'm a master of relationships. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, I share in the book a little bit about how I came to realization that that just wasn't true. But in the mid 2010s, 2000, I don't know when year, what year it was, but I came across this book called Adult Children of Alcoholics. A part of this book is laying out 12 common characteristics of adult children of alcoholics. And as I'm reading this book and listing these characteristics, I'm like, oh, oh my goodness, this is me. Not only is this me, like I thought everybody was this way and they're not. And so that was a really big moment of, okay, what are other ways that this has shaped me? How is this impacting my relationships? And so I started to do a little bit of that work. Uh, But honestly, the big moment for me in terms of coming to grips with its impact on me in very real ways was during the pandemic. And during the pandemic, uh, leading a church through the pandemic, I mean, anybody that was in a position of leadership where you were making decisions for other people around masking policy, meeting in person, all of those kinds of things, it didn't matter what decision you made, somebody was going to be upset with you. Over the months and months of that happening, I just found myself more and more emotionally exhausted by that. And I reached a point in August of 2020 where I just took a month off and needed to work through why was this so hard? Why was, why was the criticism so hard? Why was people disagreeing with me so hard? And I went back to some of this stuff around being an adult child of an alcoholic or dysfunctional family. And I was reading in particular about codependency. And as I was reading about codependency, one of the things they said is in codependency, you try to use your words and actions to manage someone else's emotions and reactions. Um, And I realized, man, that's what I've been doing with my whole church is I've been trying to use my words and actions to manage someone else's emotions and reactions. And you can't do that with one person, much less a congregation. (laughs) What did that look like as far as you trying to do that for your congregation? That's that's so interesting. Yeah, well, like, how does that play out? Just an example. Yeah. So let me back up kind of where that, how that's sure. formed, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then we'll go into that. Yeah, um, for sure. You know, growing up in a context, and this is true, not just with an alcoholic parent. This is true of, you know, an emotionally unhealthy parent. This could be true of a parent with a mental illness, overly critical parents. But a part of my experience was... I would go into a room, for example, and I would be assessing, how is my dad feeling? What kind of mood is he in? What Where is he at emotionally? Has he been drinking? And not even intentionally thinking that, but you just default to, how do I make sure he's happy? How do I manage his emotions? How do I manage his reactions to me? How do I make sure I'm receiving love and not abuse of some sort? And you kind of begin to develop that tendency with every relationship then of how do I use my behavior and my words to ensure that others are happy with me and content with me because that's how I know I'm safe. So you take that and put that in the context of a congregation and especially a season like the pandemic where it's so easy for people to be upset with you. And so you're using the decisions that you make or trying to make decisions that are going to keep people happy with you because that's how you feel safe 
or people will be approving of my decisions so that I will feel good about myself. And so really that's what that looked like during that season was finding my security in are people happy with the decisions I'm making. Gotcha. Gotcha. Golly, man. This, <laughs> how about a Christian, uh, Christianese term of divine appointment, man? Yes. You're talking about this and I just keep thinking about my wife, mm-hmm. man. Like just, mm-hmm. just so similar. Mm-hmm. Do you also experience having to make sure, and, and, and I'm not assuming that y'all's journeys sure. are exactly the same or by any means, but do you ever find yourself wanting to make sure everyone around you is happy and oh, safe yeah. also? Oh, yeah. Cause it's just like, I've got to make sure because it's on yes. me to make sure yes. that the people I love are okay and safe. Yes. And if they're upset, I've got to figure That's it out. That's right. Yeah. So I've got a chapter in the book called, I kind of talk about these three questions that we constantly ask coming out of these kinds of environments. One, is anything ever really okay? The second one is, what is a normal relationship anyway? And then can anything good come out of what I've been through? But that question of, is anything really ever okay? Is kind of coming out of my own experience of realizing I feel this constant pressure to make sure everything's okay. That is not just something that happens, but it feels like even when things are okay, they're only okay because I've worked so hard to keep them okay. And if I stop working so hard to keep them okay, everything will fall apart. And, you know, it's funny when you think about the pastoral context, there is a way in which that gets labeled as narcissism kind of this sense of like, I have to be in control of all of it. And I realized even for myself as a pastor, that that doesn't come from a place of like, this is all about me, but ultimately I feel this level of responsibility to make sure everything goes okay. It can lead to this place of I'm in control of it all. Uh, But it comes more from that place of no, I've got to make sure it's okay. I've got to make sure I'm responsible for that. So, and yeah, absolutely. So 2020, now reflecting back, Mm -hmm. when do you feel like you really started to take this approach of, okay, I've got to dig deep here. Like, I can't keep doing this. Like, what did that look like to begin that process of healing? Yeah, so when I realized that around the codependency, I began looking at what are the other ways that this is impacting, and in particular, my leadership. That's really where this started was, what are other ways in which my childhood is inhibiting my leadership as a pastor? And you had been a pastor for how long at this point? Uh, So we had planted in 2018. So this was about two years into to the plant. I'd been a okay. student pastor before that, a youth pastor before that. Uh, but in terms of leading our church, we were about two years in. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I began to realize that a part of my anxiety also came from being a child that grew up in a chaotic environment. As I said earlier, I would go into rooms and assess kind of the emotional climate of a room. And I would read body language and facial expressions and try to discern, okay, is it safe to be here? Are they happy with me? And I realized that I did the same thing now in ministry where I would go into a a room, say on a Sunday morning, and I would be looking at people's faces, their body language, their language towards me and discerning, okay, are they happy with me? Are they upset? If they're upset, what do I need to do to fix it? And I realized I was just taking responsibility for everybody's emotional worlds. And as I was walking through this, my counselor said to me one day, she goes, Ike, no offense, you're just not that important. (laughs) And That's a good therapist right there to break that down to you. Her point was like, there's a 
thousand reasons why somebody may be upset on a Sunday morning or they may have a like downcast look on their face that has nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. And so... Because then you, you have some people like me who have what my lead pastor affectionately refers to as an RBF yeah. where... <laughs> I, I'm I'm actually happy with you, but it looks like I'm I hate you. Constantly mad at you. I hate you. You are the worst. Those man, those those are the ones that are so hard for me because you're like I feel like I'm I'm like made you angry every day. <laughs> uh, and so realizing, okay, a I'm not responsible for everyone's bad feelings. If anybody's feeling bad, it doesn't mean I'm instantly responsible or I caused that. At the same time, what I began to do though is begin to say, okay, yes, I'm not responsible for everyone's emotional worlds, but if I can leverage this ability to read people's emotions and read their body language, that can actually help my relationships because it can give me an insight into where is this person and how do I enter into where they are in a way that communicates love and trust and care uh, and allows them to be vulnerable with me. And so that was a little bit of where I started that turn towards the idea that some of these things can help us for good, but it demanded doing some of that work around the negative impacts. Another one along those lines of feeling responsible for everything. You know, it's interesting, people who grew up in these contexts respond in sometimes polar opposite ways, where some people respond just incredibly responsible. They feel responsible for everything. And then other people just respond with incredible irresponsibility. And I wrestled with why is that? Like, how do you have such drastically different responses from the same household even? What happens is people either learn to internalize the pain around them or externalize the pain around them. Internalize meaning they assume that the problems going on around them are because of something wrong in me. And so if I can fix what's wrong with me, then I can fix everything around me. For those who externalize, they would say, well, the reason things are not okay is because of everybody else around me. And if they would get their junk together, then everything would be okay with me. And so that helped make sense of that. But as a pastor who internalized, this led to extreme anxiety because I took responsibility for everything, even if it wasn't mine to fix. Even if it was impossible for me to fix, I still felt like it was my responsibility to fix. And so I kind of talked. You probably felt admirable. Did you think you felt admirable to have that too? Oh, yeah. Because I, mean, I could imagine. I mean, I've felt the same way. It's just like, well, I'm a pastor. This is yeah. this is an admirable approach to yeah, take. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it leads to anxiety. It leads to to mm. perfectionism. Right. It leads to unrealistic expectations of ourselves. And so again, that was one of the things where I was burning out as a pastor because I assumed responsibility. For everything. Reading into your book, it, it it says that it's an intersection of faith, theology, and mental health. Mm-hmm. Up until this point, had you a lot of experience with a therapist? Mm-hmm. You had already mentioned your therapist. Yeah. Like it was that did you already have a relationship with a therapist? So there's a couple pieces to that. You know, I joked earlier that it was really when I got married that I began to realize that I had some of this baggage. And it started when Sharon and I, we were a couple months into being married, and she's 
she loves Disney. She loves Disney World. And so she was like, if you're going to be married to me, you need to understand my love for Disney. And so <laughs> we did this trip to Disney World. And on this trip, I have this moment. We're three or four days into this trip. And I'm like, here I am in the supposedly happiest place on earth. And honestly, I'm not very happy. Like I'm, I'm melancholy. I'm not feeling very good. And so that kind of opened the door for me to start thinking about some of this internal world kind of stuff. And so that was 2009. And around that time, experienced my first diagnosis with depression. Started seeing a counselor through that. One of the things that I had decided and Sharon and I had decided that we wanted for our relationship was actually early in our marriage to start meeting with a marriage counselor on a regular basis. And the reason for doing that was not because we had major problems, but as we like to say, because we didn't want major problems. Uh, we wanted to deal with things while they were still small, while they were new. And I'd also seen just the way that mar um, marriage counseling had been almost like a, a last ditch kind of thing on the way to divorce where it's like, well, we said we tried it, but by that point, you know, the relationship is already at a, such a point of deterioration and the love is that's demanded for healing relationship feels so lost that it's really hard for counseling work to be effective sometimes. And so we actually started meeting with a counselor in 2010 on a monthly basis that we've continued to meet with now. And so, yeah, have been very familiar with that world, been doing a lot of that work for a long time. Yeah, I'm just, I'm so happy that it it seems as if more and more people mm -hmm. are starting to recognize just just how important it, it is. Yeah. And I, I'm curious, just as you have pondered this personally, I wonder how many people never do what you wrote about. And so in other words, they never had the self-discovery or they never faced it mm -hmm. or they just didn't have the tools yeah. to know how to address it. Mm -hmm. That, that kind of stuff haunts me mm -hmm. to think of people who live their whole lives where there is help, yeah. there is a way out, there is therapy, there is God, mm -hmm. there is community that can bring you out, and it just never happens. Yeah. You know, I wonder, just, just your opinion, how often do you think that is? Like, You know, one of the things that I looked into when I was kind of preparing to write this book was thinking through... What, who, who would this book serve? You know, that's what I really want is for it to be helpful. And just speaking of adult children of alcoholics, I'm not talking about all of the different kinds of dysfunction. And this book is for more than just people who grew up in an alcoholic context. But research is showing that of the current adults in our country, one in five grew up in a home with an alcoholic, either parent one or relative. Five. Wow. So you're talking about a high number of people who have experienced this kind of dysfunction, not to mention... And that's in America? Other, that's in America. Was that an American stat? Mm -hmm. So 20% of 20 all of us. 20% of wow. all of us. Yeah. We'd never do this work because there's, there's several reasons. One reason is it just feels too painful to bring it back up. I just, I just would rather leave it in the past. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is those things don't die just because we bury them. They just go below the surface and they begin to operate in ways that we're not aware of. They function in our life in ways that we're not aware of, wreaking havoc in ways that we're not aware of. And I think that that's a part of why we don't seek out helping help for this in particular is because we don't even know that they're functioning because some of these reactions, I mean, I'm talking even for myself on my level of like, I struggle with being defensive towards my wife and that is wired into my brain from a very early age where when punishment was strict and harsh and painful, 
you develop a defense mechanism of it's not my fault. I didn't do it. Don't blame me. Right. That functions in my brain on such an, a subconscious level that until I can name that, I'm going to be defensive because you are criticizing me versus me being able to say, is there something in me that's making me unnecessarily defensive? And then begin to do that work of diagnosing it. And that's just so hard to come to. Was there some deeper heart work that you had to walk through in overcoming bitterness or unforgiveness toward your dad? The honest truth is not necessarily. I think growing up in a context a faith context where that was a common conversation, you know, around forgiveness. What does forgiveness mean? But when I was in college, I read a book on forgiveness. It was written by someone who had experienced incest and talking about what does forgiveness mean? We kind of operate as if forgiveness is this notion of just like pretending like it never happened or, you know, it means I've just got to forget that that happened. And this person writing, talking about forgiveness says, you know, forgiveness is not about pretending like it never happened. Forgiveness is about me no longer interacting with you on the basis of what you've done to me. That doesn't mean I have to trust you fully again. It doesn't mean I have to have no boundaries with you. It just means I'm no longer going to allow what you've done to continue to inflict pain on me and bitterness. And so some of it was coming to understand really forgiveness was much about my mental and emotional health as it was about letting my dad off the hook, so to speak. And so having some understanding of that was really helpful and, and was really important for me in coming to a place where I could begin my own healing work. So I, I think I'm yeah. fortunate in that way because I know for some people it is a lifelong struggle. So leveraging your experience to pursue healthy relationships, I this is a million dollar <laughs> question for me. So if you if you're leveraging something, that means there is is something that you have to use. Mm-hmm. So I thought if you had not gone through what you went through, there seems to be a strength that you have now and that you possess now yeah. that you would not have had had you not gone through this. That's right. That's exactly right. Dang. <laughs> so you're stronger now having gone through what you went through. Yeah. And, and, or, or more equipped in life. Well, the best, the way that if. I put it is, you know, it doesn't, it's not as though it's, I'm better at relationships than people who didn't have this. You know, I'm I'm not saying like, man, because I went through this, I am now better at relationships than other people who didn't experience this. What I'm wanting to communicate is when we experienced what we experienced as children, there were certain coping mechanisms that we developed to survive that environment. Those coping mechanisms served a good purpose. They helped to protect us mentally and emotionally, even physically. And so this idea of baggage is really when we carry those coping mechanisms into relationships that don't need them. That's where they begin to cause havoc in our relationships. The, the work that we've got to do is figure out how do I keep from allowing the negative parts of those coping, coping mechanisms from affecting my relationships while still recognizing there was something about that coping mechanism that helped me. So, for example, growing up in the context that I grew up in, that whole idea of being able to read emotion when I go into other relationships now, my default is to take responsibility for everyone's emotions. That's not healthy 
because now I need to fix your emotions. And when you come to me as you know a spouse or a friend and are telling me kind of how you're feeling, you get frustrated with me because I try to fix it for you. I try to tell you how to make it better. And so how do I disarm that while saying, I still have this ability to read your emotions, to understand your emotions. And I can use that for the good of my relationship now. And so that's what I mean by good baggage is it's not that I I went through this and therefore I'm automatically better at relationships, but there's some things that it put in me that I've got to learn how to leverage. And if I can, it actually will help me be really good at relationships. Yeah, that's awesome. It's uh, when people talk about books that they wrote, you know, sometimes they'll say, you know, it's it's not like a step-by-step uh-huh. or handbook, but uh-huh. it sounds like you would say this is actually a pretty practical mm-hmm. step-by-step as far as, hey, if you've gone through what I've gone through and some sort of dysfunction, mm-hmm. Here's my experience, and I believe that it could could help you. Am I? Am That's I? That's exactly right. Reading you correctly yeah, here. You know, when, as I read books around this, there was a lot that helped me understand what I experienced. Uh, they helped me understand why I am the way I am now, and then they helped me think through like, how do I heal? How do I begin to experience healing from that? Begin to disarm some of the impact. What I didn't see was that exploration into, hey, there's actually some things that this put in you that if you can learn how to leverage, it will actually benefit you. So another example would be, you know, that whole idea of us going to see a marriage counselor from early in our marriage comes from the place of, I know what I saw in my childhood. I know the relationships that I saw there. I want my relationships to go differently than that. And I think for many of us who grew up in these contexts, it gave us this passion to pursue healthy relationships at all costs because we saw what it looked like when somebody allowed their pride to keep them from getting help, you know, when they needed the help for mental health issues or for an addiction or for abuse or whatever it was, when pride got in the way, we saw the cost of that. We would say, yeah, it's a blow to my ego, but I would rather have healthy, satisfying relationships than just preserve my ego. And so that is another one of those things that it just puts in us for the good of our relationships. Yeah, what what excites me too about your your work is I I grew up in a lot of, I would say, very unhealthy religious environments mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. I think that the approach would have been in in some of my context of, oh, you went through hard stuff. Well, God can heal that. And that's a that's a that's a beautiful mm-hmm. thing. And I do believe that there is truth to that. Mm-hmm. But how I would internalize that and how, how I think I was being taught this too was so just pray yeah. and believe mm-hmm. and God will heal yeah. you. Well, you can also be a part of the process. Right. Yeah. You can actually apply scripture. You can learn mental health. Yeah. You can talk to a therapist. You can read a book like mm-hmm. this. Like this is something that you can actually be in some sort of metaphorical driver's yes. seat. You're exactly right. I think that's a part of what set us back in this work too, is this idea. Well, if I just, if I come to know Jesus, then Jesus will heal me of this. And when that doesn't happen, we find ourselves disillusioned with God, like, God, why didn't you heal me? Or we leave with immense shame and guilt because we're like, did I not mm-hmm. believe enough? Did yeah. I not pray the right way? You know, kind of going back to what you said about the ways that this actually has made me stronger. I think a part of the reason that God doesn't always just automatically heal us is because when that process is slower, there's actually things God wants us to learn in that process. 
So, for example, if God have just removed the impact of my childhood on me, I never would have gone through the journey to say, okay, how does this actually help me in relationships? What have I learned about myself? What have I learned about marriage that I can teach my congregation about their relationships? And so I think as frustrating as it can be that we just don't experience that immediate healing, a part of that is because our healing is more than just about our healing. It's about what we can learn through the process. And that process sometimes Mm -hmm. takes time. Yeah. (laughs) You mentioned you know, going through the depression, just Mm -hmm. a a quick, quick thing about me, you know, I went through a full fledged mental health crisis in 2019. Mm -hmm. And just some of the experiences Mm -hmm. with that and some other things, it's crazy. It's like, you know, because I've, I've been a pastor since 2008. And I look back on my last five years, and I'm like, how did I pastor anyone <laughs> of any good quality pastoring having not gone through that? <laughs> like, Lord Jesus, please have grace for these yes. people that I pastored all these years. Because yes. I kind of look back on that version of Joey and I'm sure. like, I didn't know what I was talking yeah. about. And, yeah. and, I, and I do believe that God sure. obviously can use a pastor's heart mm-hmm. regardless of what I've learned and what I haven't learned. Mm-hmm. But man... I, I would imagine you're sitting here on the other side of this journey like, gosh, mm-hmm. I am so much more able to help and pastor yeah. than I was without having yeah. all of this revelation. Yeah, yeah. A big part of that is I think it's nuanced my theology, not in like compromising ways, but in ways that help me to understand the texture of Scripture uh, a little more in the sense that I, I think— we can be taught this notion, for example, of sin as, you know, the things that we do out of, you know, just rebellion against God, just our, our desire to rebel against God's desires for us. And I think what I realized even in my own journey is, yes, there are sins that we commit out of rebellion against God, just a desire to disobey and go against His leading. But there's also things that we do and, and sins that we commit out of the pain that others have inflicted on us. Uh, and then it's not so much about our disobedience against God, but we are reacting from a place of our own pain. And so when we just label that as you need to repent of that before we really do the work to understand where that's coming from, A, we're going to end up frustrated. Why can't I just overcome this sin? But B, we'll continue to live that out in different ways. Maybe it's going to look a little bit differently, but we've never dealt with the root of it. And so seeing the notion of salvation as more than just what Jesus did to pay for the sin that we deserve to be punished for, but also the notion of Jesus as the great physician that who through salvation, we are healed. And just that notion in the New Testament, when it speaks of somebody being saved, that word is the same word that we see when it speaks of somebody being healed that that is a healing process. And so to be able to speak of the gospel also as a message, not just about rescue, but also a message about our healing and, and just how that has helped people also to experience God in a new way has been really powerful. Yeah. And, and just the ability to differentiate between those, those general categories of sin mm-hmm. gives us the ability to have so much more empathy oh, yeah. because it's, it's, we, we move away from you did this that means you're bad. And, and even for myself, with some of the toxic religious stuff I was mm-hmm. brought up with, being able to look at my errors as 
that doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It it means like it, you know we have a a, a therapist slash pastor that I mean basically one of his jobs here at Seacoast mm. is to look out for for the mental health of of the rest of yeah. us. And you know something that he has said for so long and it just resonates is that everybody's doing the best they can with what they have. And sometimes that pisses me off because <laughs> I want to be able to be mad yes. at somebody for doing stuff, but it's like man, that's the most gracious posture. It sounds more like Jesus than anything yeah. is like, man, we're all doing the best we can. Yeah. And you have no idea what sort of shoes people have walked in and why they're acting the way that they're yeah. acting, you know, and it's just such, such, such empathy that we can have now. But hey, let's, let's do talk about some scripture yeah. though, because obviously scripture references mm-hmm. and, and things that you've learned in, in the Bible has been a part of your journey too. Yeah. What are, what are a couple of verses that really ring true in this journey? You know, the, one of the stories that has been really powerful for me is uh, the story of David and Goliath, but not in the way that you might expect <laughs> You know, typically we think of like David's bravery and those kinds of things. The part that's been so inspiring for me is uh, I began to realize at some point during this that a big part of what I was finding a obstacle to ministry was I felt this need to do what I saw all the successful pastors around me doing and to be like them and to preach like them. And I realized that at some point I was starting to feel this distance between who I was and who I felt this pressure to be. And in an environment like the one that I grew up in, uh, so much of who I was was trying to be who I needed to be in order to keep my father happy, to you know make things okay between my parents as best I could. And that's really what codependency comes from is a loss of self that you don't really know who you are because of who you had to be for somebody else. And again, realizing I have caught, been so caught up in who I think my congregation wants me to be that I now feel this distance between who I am and who I think they want me to be. So I read the story of David and Goliath and you see David put on Saul's armor and David knows that this armor doesn't fit. It's not him. He's not used to it. Uh, We know Saul was a pretty large guy, so most likely it didn't fit David. And so David, unlike me, has the ability to say, this doesn't fit me. This is not how I fight my battles. Where I would have said, well, this doesn't fit me, but who am I to go to all these guys who have been fighting wars and say, I know you guys use this armor, but I'm not going to use it. You know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's just not how you do Mm -hmm. it. Right. And so seeing David take off the armor to know this is how I fight my battles and not even only that, but also my trust isn't ultimately in my armor anyway. It's in the Lord of armies. That's where my trust is. Gave me the freedom to say, okay, let me take off my armor, the the protective shells that I've put around myself and say, who am I as a pastor? Who has God created me and how has he created me to pastor? Because the success of our church does not depend on my ability to wear the right armor. It's going to depend on God and his action. And so for me, coming to a place of being able to say, let me take off the things that I think are helping me, but are really inhibiting me. I mean, the fact of the matter is, David, if he would have worn that armor, most likely would have been killed by Goliath. 
right? Like it was going to work against him. And so what is the armor that I'm wearing that I think is protecting me, but it's really working against me? That's one of those stories that's been really powerful and helpful for me. And then another one is uh, in Proverbs where it talks about plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. And I think we think of that oftentimes in terms of decisions we make or leadership uh, but it's true for our marriages and for our relationships that that for fell for lack of counsel, this plan we have, I say this at every wedding I do, this plan we have to be together till death do us part will fail, but with many advisors, it will succeed. That this idea that we can bring people around us to help us walk this road of healthy relationships mm-hmm. together. I mean, Solomon, thought to be the wisest man of all time, this is his words. Many advisors, you will succeed. And who are we to think we don't need that in our lives as well? Man, all of this is just so, so awesome. I have a couple more questions. Yeah. Knowing what you know about how effectual your upbringing was and the time that you spent at home and, and the sorts of things that you absorbed as a kid, <laughs> does it relieve you currently as a father where you're like, Man, I'm I'm super glad that my kids aren't going to have the same baggage that I had to work through. Or does it make you a little bit OCD <laughs> in in a way of oh shoot? I, I hope I hope I'm doing the right yeah. thing because I I if I'm not careful, I would go for the ladder and be like oh shoot. Yep. I hope I don't mess yep. my kids up. Like where where are you at yeah, with your kids? Because man, of- we all know the kids are the uh, the biggest blessing and the biggest curse. We just <laughs> never knew that we could love humans at such a depth. I was just texting back and forth with a friend of mine, just like, I cannot believe how much I love these kids and it hurts so bad to see them hurt, you know? I think it's a little bit of both. I think when I first started doing a lot of this work, you begin, you're like, man, our children are so fragile. Like there's so many things that we can do unintentionally to impact our children. You know, even just, you know, giving them praise all the time because they get good grades leads them to think, well, my value is in my performance, you know? And so that can be terrifying and it can lead to that kind of OCD and that pressure. But what I've learned, and I think that this is the grace that I'll extend to everybody is the things that we do unintentionally, the the ways that we have outbursts at our children or react to our children in ways that man later we're like, gosh, I messed that up. That yes, they can be destructive for them. But what is also really powerful for our children is when we teach them how to repair a relationship. And so when we go to them and we are able to name, hey, you know, I responded to you in a really harsh way. I think you may have taken that as you did something really wrong, but I want you to know that that was more about, you know, I had a really stressful day today and I took that on out on you. And is this a behavior that we do in the future? No, this is something that we want you to do differently, but I want you to know my response was not okay. And for them to experience that not only helps them to know, okay, it's not because I'm bad that they responded that way. It's because of kind of where they're coming from. I can still learn and not do that, but it teaches them how to go into their own relationships then and to be able to repair them. I want, you know, the people that are listening to know that as much as kind of what I went through shaped me, I also know that there are times that if my dad would have come to me and said, you know what? I really messed up there. I should not have responded to you that way. That wasn't about you. That was about me. That would have been a game changer. 
right? That would change. That's the exact words that came to my mind as game changer. Yeah. And so, you know, it does make us more aware of the the things that we do and the impact they can have, but it also teaches us how do we do the repair work, which is huge as well. Yeah. Even on this side of so much healing, do you still find yourself in times where some of that dysfunction (laughs) sneaks up and you're like, oh, wow, I'm actually having to address this still? Yeah. And that's kind of what I mean when I talk about how these things function on such a subconscious level. I mean, we're talking about things that formed before our, we have memory of yeah, them happening. We can't even wrap our mind right. around that. We don't even know what that's and like. And it yeah. was, you know, it's the fight or flight or freeze kind of mechanisms where this is how we responded to protect ourselves. And it had to function before we could even think, how do I react? So that's why I think this is more than just like praying and God heals these things. We've actually have to disarm some of those things. So a big part of my work is being able to reflect on my reactions to people and say, okay, where did that come from? And I'm not going to do this perfectly, but next time, how do I respond differently? You know, there's times now where I catch myself in the middle of responding a way that I know is not healthy and having to say, (laughs) okay, where's this coming from? Let me back up, (laughs) you know? And so it really is, it's a lifelong journey. But what I tell people is, even if you're just beginning now, your relationships will be so much healthier than if you never started this work. And so even if you're just starting this work, it's crucial work to start doing. Yeah, that's awesome. No offense to Christine Kane. Her words were (laughs) awesome, but I want to let Lisa Whittle wrap that. I love what she said about this book. She says, no one outmaneuvers the complexities of their childhood, but good baggage provides clarity and hope in its aftermath. Ike Miller has masterfully addressed our real questions, offered powerful perspectives, and given us tools to move forward. This book is so critical for pastors and leaders. It should be their next read. Mm And on their recommended resource list, it's on mine. That's that's pretty powerful yeah. stuff, man. Congrats. Thank you. Sounds like a great work. I can't wait to read it. Your people never sent me a book, oh, by the way. I need well, to, we'll get uh, that to I, you. We'll get that to you. That's okay. I will, I will buy one. I will buy one. Man, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. I think that just hearing this conversation is going to be very soothing for people who are like, man, this... This guy gets me. And uh, is Amazon the best Amazon, route to yep, take? Yep. Amazon's probably the easiest way to do it. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, Joey, thanks so much for having me. I've super enjoyed this conversation. You've been listening to the Things You Won't Hear on Sunday Seacoast podcast. In the show notes, you'll see a link to our Facebook group page. Also, we'd love for you to consider subscribing so you get these episodes downloaded right when they come out. If you enjoy the podcast, we'd love for you to give us some love by rating us on iTunes or Spotify. We now have video versions of these episodes on our Seacoast YouTube channel for those who enjoy listening and watching. Thanks so much for listening.